I believe we're working in a broken system is what's going on here. Um, but it creates this this challenge that people get into their careers and they don't they don't take ownership. And then when they do try and take ownership, they don't know how or where to go so that they're not just spinning their wheels. And so that that is the the core message of the book, the the core thing I learned and I want to distill, you know, both to my three daughters and then the next generation. Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Got it this week. <laughs> Good. So episode two of season uh, two, um, which is what, episode 44, and you've made it. You've, that's 44 episodes in and you've you've done it first time. Well done. No, no, no. I've done it first time in the last few times. It was last okay. week where first I just time this imagine season. I was shaking off the cobwebs, new new year, new me and all that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> I just, I, you know, and now I've, I've thought about it. I've, I've, come, I've come back with a vengeance and I've nailed it. I think I've nailed it anyway. Good. Well, uh, well welcome listener. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you can write in and let us know whether you think Sam has nailed it or not. Uh, answers on the back of a postcard um or pigeon or twitter it's kind of the same isn't it P- pigeon and twitter pretty, pretty much, much the equivalent pretty anyway much. rambling now <laughs> <laughs> thank you for tuning into last week's uh, episode and uh, we we appreciate the response we got um vina was a fantastic guest i have to say i did enjoy having her um but who do we have this week on the uh, show Ah, well, today's guest is Stephanie Slocum, author of She Engineers and founder of Engineers Rising. And Stephanie is not a software engineer like us, but a real architectural engineer with 15 years experience in the construction industry, where she has designed structures for buildings in healthcare, retail and higher education sectors. She is on a mission to help other female engineers create extraordinary lives and careers. She believes that all women have the power to create their own destiny by knowing themselves and using their individual strengths to achieve career and life success. Her book, She Engineers, was written as a career guide for those women who dare to be different. And so coming up is our conversation with Stephanie, but I certainly should have written an easier to pronounce intro. I've put a load of long words in there, haven't I? My name is Stephanie Slocum. I am the founder of a company called Engineers Rising LLC, where I am a leadership and business coach for women in STEM. Well, great to have you on the show, Stephanie. Thank you for joining us. So um, how did you get into this? What's your what's your background? Okay, so I should first start out with, uh, I just said I founded a company. It was never in my life plan to found a company. So I, uh, like many people, when I went to university, I struggled to figure out where, where I should go, but I knew I liked math and science. And I found the major of architectural engineering, which is the kind of art and science of both architecture and engineering squished them together. And so I spent uh, 15 years designing the parts of buildings that hold them up. So the, the structure of those buildings. And what I realized along the way is that I really, I love the, the analysis design, part of the the technical fields, but I also really love the people part. And so I found great joy in mentoring other people, teaching non-technical skills, uh, particularly for women, but for men too, to to my people. Uh, And so I ended up putting all of that into a book. I am also a writer, so I, I am the weird technical person that has loved writing since as long as I can remember. Uh, and so I put all that into a book just to kind of see what would happen and put it out into the world. So at that moment in time, this was a side project. I was working full time uh, in engineering uh, for someone else. And I put that book out into the world. I pretty quickly got asked to go do speaking for uh, young professionals groups. And I was taking vacation days to do that. Uh, and that was the first moment I realized, oh, wait, someone will pay you to come talk about topics that I've loved talking about. And six months after that book came out, I, I ended up resigning from my engineering job and jumping into mentoring, coaching uh, other women full time. I like to say I have the best job in the world because I get to blend all of the kind of technical analysis data sensibilities with the business stuff, which I also geek out on. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. And that was three years ago. So to give you a, give you a context. 
Yeah, I was going to ask. I was going to ask when it was so three three years ago. So I think, uh, I mean, how did you how did you find that sort of shift then between sort of a full time engineering role into sort of being speaker, you know, mentor? That that's a, that's quite a shift. How did you how did you deal with that sort of tipping point? Yeah, so I found it to be very challenging. As a technical person, I had no background whatsoever in, for example, marketing and sales. That was not, and I would never, I love the people part, but I'm also an introvert. So I would never have considered myself a people person. Like I, I'm not the person, or at least in my in my prior engineering life, who would have been all gun ho on networking, going to events, that sort of thing. And so at first I'm like, okay, well, I just need to learn the thing. So I just need to go to marketing and, and sales things and learn from other people who have done it before. And I pretty quickly realized I had a lot of mindset challenges that came that came from the technical background. So for example, uh, perfectionism tendencies, which I imagine a lot of our listeners have. Yeah, Sam and I have that as well, I think, don't yeah. we? <laughs> and an issue with sales and marketing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, as an entrepreneur, if you have perfectionist tendencies, what that does is you're like, okay, uh, I have to have my program has to be perfect before I stick it out into the world. And so I would work on something for months and months and months, and then I would put it out and then no one would buy it. Um, and so that was that was about the first year and a half, two years of my business that I, that I would do these things, work really hard, you know, put in all the hours to do it, put them out into the world. And then I realized that, okay, like we are objectively smart people, right? Like we're in technology. And so it's not that I couldn't figure it out. It's that I needed to find people who had done this before to help me. And so I think that that lesson applies no matter what field you're in and that recognizing, okay, you can very much accelerate your path to being successful if you have people, whatever you want to call them, mentors, your board of directors, you know, people you can, you can talk to and say, okay, how, how can I do this better? Um, and it was at that point I learned that about things like market research. So talking to your clients and finding out what they want, whether your client is an individual person and you're running a company or your quote unquote client is your direct manager and finding out, okay, what's important to them so that giving, you know, helping them get what they want means you can be more successful in your role. How did that conflict with your introversion of going out there and having to talk to your customer and various things like that? Yeah. Um, so at first I struggled from what do I say syndrome? We'll call it that. <laughs> um, and I also felt like I felt like if I was going out to talk to people I didn't know that meant that I had to have like something ready to sell them. And so I was stuck in this kind of brain trash land, which is what I, what I call those kind of, I guess, saboteurs, internal saboteurs that show up when you're doing something that is out of your comfort zone. And I, what I ended up doing is I, as I had another entrepreneur friend that they're like, okay, you need to reframe this for yourself. And you need to think of it as, talking to people to find out what their needs are, what their challenges are, what they're struggling with, and kind of help co-create with them how you can solve this problem. And so that got me thinking about, okay, like how can I turn this not from feeling like this is a sales conversation I'm having with someone, but to we are like problem solving together. I, even as an introvert, I love other people's stories. And so put me in an individual or small group situation uh, where I could ask people, okay, like, what are you, what are you dealing with? No, really, how, what, how is your day today? I really want to know. I'm not just asking that facetiously and transforming it into, okay, I want to know your story and what your challenge is and understand how I might be able to help shifting to that mindset of service really uh, was the kind of game changer for me and how I approach all of those conversations. Uh, because I started my business, as I, as I alluded to, but maybe haven't said directly yet, because I wanted to make a bigger impact in the world than I felt I could have in my technical design roles. And so 
coming from this place of service, uh, really tapping into, okay, what matters to me and how I show up in the world, and then translating that into the market research sales process was kind of my path to being more comfortable in that space. And did, did you notice any, any kind of immediate benefit from having spoken to your potential customers and all the rest of it? Yeah, absolutely. The first benefit I noticed was that I didn't have to try and sell things as hard. So what do I mean by that? People would have a conversation with me. We we'd talk about challenges and, and things like that. And then I would tell them, okay, well, you know, I'm going to take this conversation and think through, okay, what, what could I do that might be able to help you here? And then I would end up having a second conversation and I would share, share what I did. And then I just very kind of casually, uh, because I am, I'm recognizing about myself, I'm never going to be a like hardcore closer salesperson. And that is completely cool with me. But I'm like, okay, are you interested? Would you, would you like to sign up for this? And most of the time, if they accepted that second call, it ended up being a yes. And so for me, it was finding, you know, finding a way to sell in a way that was authentic. And then once I found that, it became a lot easier, which ultimately resulted for, you know, more revenue and more, more success for me once I found, found that path. Did you go through a similar sort of cycle with the the actual speaking engagements you were doing as well because i think i think i'm probably better on a one-to-one basis rather than on a you know a large platform basis and i think it's 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 difficult isn't it i think that the knowing what to say and the value in in what you're saying all the stuff you were saying then is like it's it's it eats away at you when you're in the midst of these conversations i'm wondering, wondering did you have to get over that same sort of thing with your public speaking uh yes i did uh and and let's talk about that for a moment, because if I even went back five years ago and saw my future self as a paid public speaker, I would have laughed at even that concept. The first time I had to give a presentation in my technical career to anyone besides just a small team in like a conference room was 10 years in. And so this is not something I practiced. This is not something I had done a lot of. And I'd heard, oh, you know, go to Toastmasters or go to go to different different things like that. But for me, what it came down to is I am a writer, as I mentioned. And so spending a lot of time preparing and I would literally write out scripts of here is what I'm going to say. Uh, I'd write out bullet points, outlines, all of those things. I'd spent a lot of time preparing the presentation and practicing it. And then I would get to a point where, okay, I have this presentation. Now I need to go give it to lots of people. And so I literally looked at this as you've got to put in the hours of practice. I mean, it's not just preparation, but giving it to people. And so like, for, for example, in the first year of my business, I went around and gave some paid, but a whole lot of free presentations on the same, same topics uh, so that I got very comfortable, for example, with storytelling, which is another really good skill that a lot of technical people don't have or if you used to have it you haven't practiced it um and so we we don't know we don't know how to tell stories and i had to kind of relearn that and and put in the reps what i will say is okay so that first time i gave a presentation 10 years into my career i was physically shaking i had practiced a ton i had even down to writing in every single word i was going to say in my powerpoint (laughs) thing Uh, but i was still physically shaking i still got really nervous does that feeling go away? I imagine some people are asking and yes, it does, but I've given, I don't know, 50 presentations in the last year alone to more than 5,000 different individuals. And at some point you start to think, okay, like I'm excited instead of feeling the nervous butterflies, it's I'm excited to share this and see how this might, how attending this event or listening to me speak might make a difference for someone else. Again, I'm coming back to that service thing. For me, that service is what has kicked me out of, you know, I'm an introvert. I would much prefer to kind of hide in my office, create stuff, put it out in the world and not get feedback on it. And yeah, like I I would, if I was doing what was comfortable, that's what I would do. But what I've realized is if I wanna have the impact in the world uh, that I want to have, 
that message has to go way out beyond my desk in my office and it has to get out into the world. Yeah, you've got to get outside your comfort zone. Absolutely. Have you changed the, your style of presentation? Are you still actually like writing everything out or? Uh, absolutely. So in the beginning, I was writing every single sentence out. I on certain certain topics of my presentation. So for example, the one of the most popular topics that I speak on is uh, developing professional role confidence. So developing confidence in your abilities in your job. Um, and that particular topic, um, I can now kind of go off off the cuff on because I've given a, a version of that presentation so many times. But last month, I gave an entirely new presentation, and guess what? Almost almost everything. I think I was every other slide now <laughs> was still written out. For me, it's because I'm a writer, uh, because I process things in written or visual form. So like I love infographics, I like drawing out things so I can see visually analogies. I don't do so well on uh, improv, for example. <laughs> um, I'm not, I don't tend to be an off the cuff kind of person. And so I found a process that that works for me. And then, you know, after since I've practiced so much now, I've, I'm to the point that I don't have to write everything down because I know me showing up with all the knowledge I have on the on whatever topic I'm speaking on, that is going to be enough. Uh, so some of the this is also a worth issue in terms of thinking like, are your perfectionist tendencies like why are they there? For me, this was kind of a like if I want to you know play armchair psychologist for a moment. For me, it was coming from this place of, okay, I'm not a speaker, even though I've spoken now a lot. I'm not a speaker. I'm not this. I'm not that. Like we have all these identity stories we tell ourselves about what we are and are not. And for me on the speaking side, I had so much ingrained, oh, I'm not a speaker. I'm not a speaker that I was very likely over-preparing because I felt like I wasn't good enough to just show up just as I am. Yeah, I went through a similar cycle, to be honest. I, I um, Well, early on, I was uh, vice president of my student union, which I don't think you have quite the same thing in American universities. Maybe you do, I'm not sure. But um, it was sort of like a student representative for, for, my, for my university. It was a paid position full-time uh, you either take it as a gap year um, whilst you're studying or you do it when you've when you've graduated which i did and we had to do presentations to all of to all of the students across the campus which was you know quite big and daunting and one of the first tasks that you had to do as an as an elected officer and um i was really uncomfortable with that because i had speeches that had been written for me and eventually i had to just get to bullet points because i couldn't read all of the words and actually present it at the same time and i found it really quite a quite a difficult challenge to sort of move to making it more natural rather than it being quite sort of wooden i think that presentation skills thing is really quite difficult to master it is it is i mean if it was easy everyone would be doing it well, what there's a saying that you know at, at your funeral people would rather be in the casket than doing the public speaking that's like <laughs> one of the one of the top one of the top fears but on the same token if particularly if your field is in a technology based field where let's be frank the bar is really low for public speaking <laughs> like you don't have to be good you have to be willing to do it. And if you're willing to put a little bit of effort into practicing that and, and getting away from the woodenness of it, that can make you really, really stand out. See, I think that's quite an inspiring thought. I don't think I'd really thought about it like that for, uh, from a technology perspective. That the bar is really low. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it is quite well. It's not inspiring from a from an industry perspective, but it's an inspiring from an individual perspective. That if you think you've got something to say, then actually, yeah, you probably can go out and 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 do it, and not necessarily worry about it. Because I think that's one of the things that we all fear is like, who would want to listen to me? You know? Yeah, and this is something. I mean, I know I definitely struggled struggled with both who would want to listen to me and and how do I how do I make my point? Because I think we've all had the experience of sitting in a meeting, we have a brilliant idea, we say it, and it gets shot down immediately. And, and you're like, oh, this is a brilliant idea. Why can't anyone else see it? Um, and then 
public speaking has also helped me be able to art just do basic stuff like articulate my ideas better in a meeting or a group setting or in any other kind of setting where you're talking like a zoom call so so in leading up to writing your book did you get that same sort of who wants to listen to what i've got to say <laughs> absolutely uh and so the the impetus for writing the book was actually uh, I hit a point in my career. I mean, I was I was mentoring and coaching other people on this, but I also uh, was looking for resources, and I didn't find a resource that is precisely like my book. So my book is called She Engineers, and it is essentially all the things that I wish someone had told me when <laughs> I started my career in engineering. Uh, basically, all the non-technical things that you need to do or know or understand to be successful, because there's a lot of, what, could, what I call them, unwritten rules in your career. Like, we can go to school and learn a lot of the technical stuff. We learn a lot of the technical stuff on, on the job and by doing it. But then there's all these other rules that no one tells you about, like if you want to get promoted, um, how to cultivate a relationship with, with decision makers in your firm if they're not like your direct, uh, the direct people you're working with. How, how do you do that? Uh, or like lots of people don't even know you need to do that. Um, and so all those all those things went into the book. And so when I got to the, I would say the the final hours before publishing it, and I self I self published the book. I had I still had all those doubts. I was like, well, do I really want to put this out in the world? Because there's literally, if you're if you're self publishing a book, there's literally a button that you press that like publish. Okay, now it's out there. And so I'm sitting there at my computer, being like, okay, here's the button. Am I sure I want to press this button? What if my book is crap? What if like, what if everyone hates it? What, like all these, what ifs, you know, what if it's terrible? Who's going to want to listen to me? And I kept on coming back. So I have three daughters and I have seen firsthand the impact between my daughters and the people I'm mentoring and the people I work with, the impact that just one person either believing in you or showing up at the right moment with that pertinent piece of advice can change your entire career trajectory for the better. I've seen the impact that that can have. And I thought to myself, okay, if me putting out, me being willing to be vulnerable and putting this book out into the world can help even one other person to not have to struggle in the same ways I did, would it be worth it? And I'm like, absolutely, it would be worth it. So I shut my eyes. I like, you know, fingers crossed, press the button and the book, the book came out into the world. And it's, it's got quite a lot of um, very positive reviews on it on Amazon as well, which is, which must be really lovely to be able to see. It is. It is. I also, I mean, I, I do have a couple, you know, people who weren't, weren't thrilled with it as well. Well, there's always one. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what, I, that's actually when I go on Amazon, I'm like, okay, book reviews. If they have no, like one or two star reviews and I'm like, are these reviews fake? Yeah. I saw something the other day where someone had said, if people, if, if, the, if you haven't got some haters, then you're not trying hard enough, <laughs> which again, I think it's quite, that's quite a positive way of looking at it as well, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. But the, the goal then, so, I mean, it was, it, I'll be honest, I haven't read the book, I'm afraid, but the, um, it's, it's very female focused, I suppose, in terms of like how to help other females get on in the, in engineering and specifically in constructing, in, sorry, in constructing, in construction, which I imagine is probably quite a male dominated world. Yeah. And so uh, most of the people in my world are typically are in technology, construction, or somewhere related into like architecture building stuff. Uh, because what I have found is that the exact stories are a little bit different, but the problems are the same. And so the book is really for the young-ish, so first 10 years of your career, ambitious woman, uh, who is trying to figure out what's next for her. Now, that said, I have been told by particularly owners of small engineering firms, of which there are tons in uh, fields like civil engineering, for example, that they have given the book to all of their project managers and client-facing people to read because so much in it was relevant to them. I talk a lot about 
things like first figuring out what you want in your career, but then also how do you acquire those skills and how do you show up in a way uh, where you're you're demonstrating your knowledge and how your skills align with the business bottom line. I came at engineering very much with a, a business bent, a business mindset in terms of, okay, how does my role fit into uh, making my firm money? Uh, and I firmly believe when you know know that and can articulate it and can maximize what you're doing day to day to align with that, you can basically write your own ticket to wherever you want to go in your career or your business. Because, you know, I started out going into engineering uh, because I love the technical work. But at the end of the day, what keeps you employed is how you in some way, shape or form have to be making your employer, or if you're an entrepreneur, your own business, money. <laughs> and so keeping that in mind as you're moving forward uh, is what will protect you, at least to some extent, when the inevitable you know, economic downturns, layoffs come, uh, is how, how well you can tie your value to that. So, so what was the impetus for actually um, stringing this all together into a, into a book then? Was it that you learned... Uh, you know, a whole load of things that if you'd known earlier to your point, then you probably would have got there faster or uh, that, that sort of thing. So what were the, what were the things that you, you learned then? Is there a brief summary of like, I wish I hadn't done this. <laughs> okay. Uh, actually. So I would say that the core, I think the core message of the book, which I think applies to, to everybody, no matter where they are, is this idea that you have got to own your path. And so what do I mean by that? So all the way up through school, even up through college, our paths are generally laid out for us. We are told to you know, go to school for a certain length of time, that when you're in these classes, pass this test, do this homework, you know, if you do well, eventually that will lead to a job. And it's very uh, formulaic for the most part and do a, B, C, D, E, F, G, go on your way. And then all of a sudden you get out into your first job. And if you're anything like me, you see, okay, you almost see your manager, your first manager is you see it as your teacher. And so you look to your manager and you say, okay, manager, you need to tell me kind of what I need to do, what my options are for where I can go in this very broad field. And you kind of abdicate your responsibility for your career to someone else. Um, and you wait for someone to show up and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you're good at this, you should go do that. Now, in reality, that's not how work works. Um, in reality, you need to be able to speak up for yourself, advocate for yourself, decide for yourself where you wanna go, what skills you wanna apply, and be open to the opportunities that will get you there. So this book, kind of walks you through, number one, how, how do you figure that out? How do you figure it out as a woman in a male-dominated field where there can be a lot of um, double standards, unconscious biases that will show up even from very well-intentioned people? I mean, I'm fortunate to be able to say, all of my managers I've worked with, all very nice people, all very well-intentioned. This stuff still shows up. I do it, we all do it. and. And, and just being able to figure out, you know, where you want to go and owning and being 100% responsible for, okay, if I'm not where I am right now, what can I do right now to help me get to where I want to go? Again, I feel like our, our, our school systems, and I have complete utmost respect for teachers and, and all of that, I, I believe we're working in a broken system is what's going on here. Um, but it creates this, this challenge that people get into their careers and they don't they don't take ownership. And then when they do try and take ownership, they don't know how or where to go so that they're not just spinning their wheels. And so that that is the the core message of the book, the the core thing I learned and I want to distill, you know, both to my three daughters and then the next generation. So the, the difficulty was, I suppose, then not knowing what the path was to begin with. Is that is that the case? So that that's some of the difficulty. I would say the other piece of it is the, how, how do you deal with uncertainty? Um, and so I find myself, this is something I am still working on to this day and I will continue to work on it. But when I talk to 
technical folks. And at the time I wrote the book, I actually could not articulate it like this, but I see it so clearly now uh, that I wanted, I wanted to share it, is that often we look for certainty where there is none. And so, for example, a lot of people have been brought up on this idea that going to get a job and working for someone else means job security. Well, let me tell you, as having lived through a number of economic downturns where, you know, entire offices closed, entire uh, firms closed, departments laid off, all of that, it doesn't matter how technically gifted you are if your firm goes under, the firm you're working for goes under. Um, and so this idea that, that working for someone else is job security is a, is a myth that we've essentially kind of created to maybe make us, make us feel better. You know, these are, these are things that have been in place for, you know, a hundred odd years now where, you know, you go to school and then you, you learn enough that you can go and have a job and then you work for the man for the rest of your life and then you die. Um, <laughs> it's not particularly inspiring. And it's also, um, you know, geared to you do all of your learning in school and then you're done. And then you just... Uh, then, you, then you're just a laborer for whatever uh, purpose. And, you know, maybe you get promoted and you get to be a manager, but that's about it. So, yeah, I think it, it is sort of rooted in, in, in that. It definitely is. And then we, we, I see this often that people, okay, so let's say someone says, oh, I'm going to do all the work and, and figure out, you know, exactly where I want to go. Okay, so that now I have a career plan. Well, and now I'm not going to deviate from that career plan because this is my plan. So what happens is when you're so focused on the path you're, you're going on, you have blinders to potentially all the opportunities going on around you. And we've seen entire industries suffer from this. So like if you uh, were in the newspaper industry uh, in, in the 90s, you may have, you know, you're like, okay, I'm going to major in journalism. I'm going to go into newspaper writing. And the internet like hadn't really appeared yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. My, my wife studied publishing at university, you know. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, like, there will be a lot of jobs, and there are jobs now that weren't even thought of, weren't even in the realm of the dream world when I graduated from college, which I'll age myself here, is about 20 years ago now, that you can do now. And I feel like the same thing can be said of, for example, entrepreneurship, that it used to be that you couldn't start a company as one person. Like you had to, you had to have a team, you had to go raise a bunch of VC capital, you had to have a physical location, you know, rent an office space, all of that. And now one of, one of the things I will often encourage uh, people to do is at least start either a side hustle or a blog or a podcast or something that you can own. Why? Because what I found is, remember I said the core message of a lot of the things I talk about is this idea of owning your own thing. What I found is that when people have something that they own, whether it be, uh, you know, it could be a not make you any money to start, right? But it could be something that they own, whether it be your chair of some committee in your industry, you start some sort of group that you're interested in. The confidence you get from doing that and knowing, hey, I'm 100% responsible for doing this bleeds over into every other aspect of your life. Mm, that's interesting. So you're saying that just having some level of ownership in some part of your life is going to give you more confidence in, you know, even if you just, if, even if you're content to just work, continue working, doing the nine to five type job? Absolutely. Because for some people, the nine to five is the thing for you. Like, I'm not at all saying everyone should just, you know, quit their jobs and go start a company. <laughs> Don't do that. And if you are going to quit your job and start a company, I'd also say if you can start it while you're still working for someone else, that is the bet. That's what I did. Um, not saying that ethically you can do that in all, there's definitely situations where you can't do that ethically, but I think there are a lot of situations where you, where you can. Um, but again, I think just owning, having something in your life you own uh, even if it's just, you know what, I'm, I'm deciding today I'm getting in shape and I'm going to go run that marathon. Uh, again, brings knowing that you can do hard things and that you had 100% ownership of something somewhere else 
bleeds into your work life in ways that are hard to quantify until you can see the before, before and after. Because there's a lot of, in the workplace, this idea that the person that raises their hand and speaks up tends to be the person that's going to get ahead. It's not necessarily the best idea that gets taken in a meeting. It's often the idea that someone talks the most about. And so when you have that confidence, even when you need to get it from outside of work, and I, I found through a lot of my research and, and studying that went into the book and the work I'm doing now, women especially often get a lot of their kind of confidence, leadership skills outside of the workplace initially, and then eventually their work catches up. But it, it starts with kind of that foundation of, hey, I'm going to own this. I know I can do hard things. And then at work, what happens is people start raising their hand or going after opportunities that before they would have said, no, I'm not quite qualified for that. Or uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep my head down and work hard until someone taps me on the shoulder, which usually never happens. Do you think that, so, that men and women come into the workplace with different mindsets to begin with them? I do. I mean, we come to the workplace with all with with a backpack of all that society tells us we should or should not be within our gender roles. And so for a lot of women, they have have grown up with the idea that, uh, you know, being communal, people pleasing tendencies, we will often ask permission. Uh, so if you imagine the grade school, grade school that you wait until the you raise your hand and wait till the teacher calls on you to, to say anything. I, I, I remember trying to ask permission in my first job to go to the toilet. I didn't know if it was a thing I was allowed to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And, and of course, like I'm speaking in complete generalities here because there's definitely like we, we have a lot of studies that show there are definitely some commonalities between what society tells women they should be and what society tells men they should be. And these bleed over into every aspect of our work and life, uh, including you know how we approach our first jobs. I mean, I've definitely seen that there seem to be more men that, sh that will adopt the fake it, be comfortable adopting the fake it till you make it thing. And if you talk to a woman about it, she'll say, well, that doesn't feel authentic to me or some version of like, that doesn't, that doesn't align with who I am. And so I'm not, I'm not going to show up that way. I'm just going to, you know, keep my head down, keep working hard. Eventually my good work will be noticed, um, which is again, a complete fallacy for everyone, <laughs> no matter what gender you are. So, so when you're, uh, when you're coaching then through engineers rising, when you're doing these programs, what is it you're trying to achieve? Are you trying to are you trying to help uh, women to play within the world that we live in, or are you do you want to try and have a bigger impact in changing the culture in the workplace? Yes, is the answer to that. <laughs> so both questions. <laughs> yes. Okay. So um, often, so individual individual women. So I have a number of one-on-one -on -one programs and group coaching programs um, that are often, the person that comes into them is often someone who is frustrated with where they're at. Uh, they may not know what's next for them. They may be uh, in some career, sort of career transition, either looking for a new job, uh, wants to start a family soon, not sure how that's going to fit in. But in all cases, she is frustrated <laughs> with where she's at. Um, and for those women, often, I provide a loving reality check about <laughs> what they need to do. And we kind of craft a plan to get them unstuck from where, wherever it is that they uh, are stuck. Often when you're stuck, there is a gap between where you are and where you think you should be. So these thoughts of, I should have been farther along than I am by now. Uh, and understanding where are those, usually those should thoughts about here's what I should be doing, again, are driven by kind of these ingrained societal stereotypes, either related to gender roles or race or how you were brought up that you're carrying around with you that you don't even know you have. 
It's also the reality that in a lot of organizations, let's, let's say, for example, you are being treated unfairly for, for any reason. A lot of times you can't go to your manager and say, you're treating me unfairly. Stop doing that and treat me fair. Like that's not going to get you anywhere. <laughs> Um, and so how do you make your business case? How do you articulate your value in that context so that you can move forward from your stuck position? And sometimes that is going to find a new job. A lot of times it's not. And so that's one piece of what I do is helping those individual frustrated women. On the other side of this, I believe that how we fix this problem uh, is we have more diversity in leadership. And so uh, we, in tech, it still happens. Uh, and actually all across all, this is engineering, STEM, any of these fields. Often the reason someone is initially promoted to a manager position is because they were really good individual contributor technically. And they're promoted to that manager position with no manager training, with no leadership training. In some cases, they don't even want to be a manager, but what they learned was that the only way to get paid more and move up in the organization was to get a manager position. Okay, so when that happens, we, particularly without training, again, all these kind of like unconscious biases come in and that we tend to promote and look more positively on people that remind us of us. And this is everyone, I do this, you do this. And unless we are super mindful of that, we'll just, we, we create an echo chamber without even thinking about it, an echo chamber of people like us. Um, and so that is the other problem, I would say, within the organizations that I work, I work to solve uh, and help organizations set up programs to solve this. Uh, because what I've recognized is it has to be a, a two-prong two approach. Um, you can empower individuals and you need to empower the, empower the organizations. And yes, I have seen empowered individuals affect change in organizations that I didn't think they'd be able to pull it off, and they did. Um, but I've also found it, found it vice versa, because I do think it's a myth that if your organization isn't 100% supportive of you as an individual, well, the, your only choice is to go find, keep on job hopping until you find the right place. Like, like yes, there's a time for that. But the reality is, I think, more nuanced in that a lot of organizations, it's just a matter of how do you present the, the business case? That always goes back to the business case. How do you present the business case in a way that you can get buy-in for um, the initiatives that allow us to get more diversity into leadership? With your clients, who are the, who are the ones coming to you? Are, the, are, those, are, the, are the organizations coming to you and saying like, we need more diversity in our leadership or is it someone else? So it's individuals within the organization, right? Usually it is um, one, of the, one of the frustrated women who I helped, who is now trying to start um, some sort of women's initiative, leadership or otherwise within, within her organization. Sometimes it comes the other way, but usually it's someone in that like middle, I'm gonna say middle management, who is trying to like, bring that sort of initiative into her into her organization. So over the last sort of three years or so, have you found that it's got easier or harder? Or I mean, because, you know, this has been a, a huge topic culturally, globally. Is it getting easier or is that making it worse? <laughs> so it depends. The, I see two common reactions to, to the heightened awareness in the world about uh, racial and gender issues. The two reactions uh, is one, uh, a level of defensiveness towards, I don't want to be called any sort of ist, so racist, sexist, whatever ist you wanna add. And so therefore I am gonna pretend that we are all the same treat everyone exactly the same and pretend that none of this matters. And I don't want to talk about it at work because I will open up a can of worms and I might be accused of being an ist. That's one side of this that I, th I think the conversation has polarized people. So there's, there's one group like that. And then the other group is like, oh, well, yeah, this is an issue. 
let's start having conversations about this, even if we're not quite ready to do anything about it yet. Uh, let's have start having more open conversations with this about all the different identities at work because I have never talked to anyone in the technical fields who did not say, man, woman, everyone in between, that at some point and at many points in their career, they felt unappreciated, alone, isolated, like no one got them. Like this is, these are very common feelings. And we don't talk about all the pieces of your identity, you know, race and gender are obvious ones that you can see as soon as you see someone. But, you know, there are differences between, you know, we're economic status of the household you were raised in, you know, single parent, two parents, uh, if you were a veteran, like there's all sorts of different identity things, introvert, extrovert, that makes every single person unique. And so it's, you know, it's how do you react to all these things in the world? Are you reacting with defensiveness? Let's kind of put our head in the sand about this and we're not going to talk about it versus, you know, let's just like our technical problems in our work that we have to know the constraints and the parameters in order, order to solve the problem. We can't just design something in a little bubble and push it out into the world and hope it works. And so the people I work with are on the, let's talk about this, we have an awareness of this, uh, let's fix this problem. And, and that's why I said, does it always work out? No, because if I'm talking to someone who is convinced that the way to solve the problem is by pretending it doesn't exist, like imagine if we did that in our technical work, how bad the outcome would be. We're just gonna pretend that particular problem doesn't exist, therefore we don't have to solve it. That's where a lot of my consultancy work has come from actually, <laughs> when that's hit the wall for people. <laughs> Do you see a future in solving this? Because I feel like it's it's a long journey. It really is to, to get to a place of where we've solved this problem. What's your outlook on on when we'd be in a satisfactory place with recognizing all of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my outcome of when we will be in a satisfactory place. So I want to see the percentage of women specifically who are graduating with STEM degrees to match the percentage of women working in the field and in leadership positions. And so, I mean, I can talk to engineering specifically because those numbers I know really well off the top of my head. Right now, depending on what field you're in, you have about 15% at the high end and eight to 9%. So 15% tends to be in uh, civil engineering. Uh, the environmental engineering actually has the most of, of women in. And then once you get into like utilities, and construction that tends to be down at the eight nine percent those are the retention rates but we have about 40 percent graduating with engineering degrees so we have 40 percent graduating we only have 10 to 15 percent staying in the field and the percentage of women who are leaders like c and, and i'm gonna say like you can be a leader wherever you are however the percentage of women in charge of their organizations is somewhere down like one two percent so we have a I, we have a very very leaky cup here that we're pouring. We're doing a lot of outreach for young younger people. Like here's what STEM is. It's not just sitting in the corner and doing math all day long, right? And so we're doing we're doing a lot of that sort of thing. But even when you pile more and more people into the bucket, if you still have the leaks, it's going to keep on coming out. And so, uh, Sam, back to your kind of I think where you were going with that is so this is a problem that the retention rate hasn't actually shifted significantly in 20 years. While at the same time, the number of people graduating with degrees in STEM, uh, I think has quadrupled. It's a lot. We've had a lot more people coming in and especially a lot more women. And, and we have a very large dichotomy here in you know, where, where are the people going uh, when they you know, leave the industry? Um, and I can actually answer that question too when it comes to women. Uh, so a lot of people are like, oh, well, women are leaving because they're starting families. Um, and I'm going to specifically speak to what's going on in the United States, because those, again, those are the statistics I'm most familiar with. There was a huge study that was funded by uh, the National Science Foundation that found that they, they tracked all the women that had left engineering specifically. 
uh, and where, where did they go? And they found that most of the women ended up in executive level positions in other industries. So think about that for a moment from an organizational standpoint. You are spending all this time and money training your people, training the future leaders, and they're taking that training and they're going to other industries like finance is a very popular one, where those skills are, you know, in the problem solving skills that you develop as an engineer are in really high demand. Um, so I would ask to the, you know, I have said this facetiously, but seriously to organizations and, and CEOs, why are we shooting ourselves in the foot? Training, training people up that are good enough to be leaders in other, other fields, but for whatever reason, they are, are not promoted and, and happy in, in the technical fields. And again, like it's not just women, it happens a lot. Mm, that's so interesting because I, I always thought, and this is just the bubble that I'm in rather than anything else, but I actually thought STEM industries were very forward thinking in this kind of stuff. I thought we were trying very hard, but you, that just kind of crapped all over that idea because they're, they're <laughs> su- you know, they're succeeding in other industries, you know? So a, a topic that often comes up with this type of, uh, these types of efforts is about positive discrimination. So you talk those numbers and we can talk about, you know, percentages and things like that. Just getting a higher percentage isn't necessarily a good thing or the right thing. How, how, do you have any perspective on how we try not to encourage positive discrimination at all? Okay, and so uh, when you say positive discrimination, I think what you're referring to is the kind of uh, tokenism of we're going to hire a, a woman or whatever or promote a woman for the sake of having a woman on our team. Is that is that what you're referring to? Precisely, yeah. Okay, and so. Again, I'm going to I'm going to go back to studies because I, I can share anecdotally what I see here, but I think there's a lot been a lot of good research around hiring and promotion practices. Let, let's start there. So if you have two resumes that are identical and you have uh, a name of a person that sounds African-American versus a name of a person that is sounds obviously white the white person is three times more likely to get called just for the interview. And similar things have been found when it comes to gender as well. Uh, And so one of the low hanging fruits, for example, would be to, as you're looking at, as an organization is looking at, who am I gonna bring in for an interview? Take the names off the resumes, right? Then you're looking at pure qualifications. And obviously when they come in for the interview, you're you're gonna know that. Um, but I mean, that's a pretty easy starting point for, you know, how do we make sure qualifications are, you know, we're hiring the most qualified person, which may happen to be a minority race or gender. Uh, similarly on promotions. So often we find that what it takes to get a promotion is a mystery to most people in an organization. So you're at a level, you want to get to the next level but you have no idea other than your manager's benevolence what you need to do to get to that next level. So transparency there in terms of documenting, writing down, making it clear to everybody, like here are the skills you need to do. Here's the, if you're in a small organization, maybe the work you need to bring in. Here, here's what you need to do. Let's make a, a checklist in essential, in essence, for what you need to do to get to the next level. And now you have metrics to measure yourself against so that when it gets to time for the promotion, you know exactly, okay, well, here's why I'm falling short. This person, you know, checked off all the boxes. So that's why they get promoted. And that creates, you know, again, this isn't, this creates better organizations for everyone, not just women. Um, And that's what we find over and over again when we implement hiring and promotion practices that are equitable to everybody is that putting something in place benefits everyone and it creates less turnover in the organization as a whole because you don't have this now resentment for, well, why did this person get promoted and I didn't? And that also has, again, the benefit of creating more diversity in leadership within your organization. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And 
The other question I had as well is uh, around what you're doing is very re- reactive to women and individuals coming coming forward to wanting change, wanting to develop, wanting to get promotions and, and all the rest of it. How, how are you touching on people who are, rightly or wrongly, they're not really a driver for change and they are kind of sitting back like how are you convincing people that there is a change needs to be made more specifically women because obviously that's your your focus area but there are plenty of people who just do not see that there's a problem or, or whatever and that there there are minds to be changed basically how how are you going about doing that yeah yeah and so again i want to go back to this idea that i one of the hard lessons i learned early on in my business was that when I went into convincing mode, I was already going to lose. Like I wasn't, I cannot make a point by convincing someone who doesn't think there's a problem, that there is a problem. They have to come to that conclusion themselves. Now, one of the best ways uh, that we are convinced to take action or not is when we hear other people's stories that resonate with our own. So when we hear a story and we can see ourselves within that person's story, then we're like, okay, well, you know, that maybe my worldview has shifted a little bit. Um, And then when you hear it again, okay, maybe it shifted a little bit more. Um, And so I found myself focusing my efforts, again, not on convincing because I can throw data and statistics at at you all day long uh, that demonstrate there is a problem. But I also recognize data and statistics aren't going to do anything to someone who's like, no, we don't have a problem. However, hearing the story of someone that reminds them of their wife or their daughter or someone at work that has struggled with, let's say they're struggling with a harassment discrimination situation at work. Hearing that story and making it real for them may make a difference. Uh, And so a lot of my focus, and this is the reason why I wrote a book, uh, and I'm uh, hoping to start a second one next year, is in gathering the stories of, you know, successful women in the field, like here's some of the struggles they had, here's the difficulties they had, here's how they overcame it. Because, again, like that's, humans are wired to respond to stories. Um, And so I've, found my energy and efforts are best spent towards, okay, telling those stories because those stories convince, but not in a convincing way. They also help people know they're not alone and they're not the only ones dealing with those those struggles. Um, Because how do we affect change? Well, even the people who are the most difficult to convince, if they see that organization X has affected a whole lot of change, and now all the women from organization Y are going to organization X. Um, eventually, the people at organization Y will be like, okay, we're losing all our people over there. What are they doing differently? Does that, does that answer your question? Absolutely. And I actually think that's, well, basically your second book is all about stories. And I think that's totally true when it starts to resonate because, you, yeah, change happens really from the inside where it just it clicks you know it sounds like it's it's ripe for a for a, for a visual kind of like a documentary type of thing as well if you're telling stories and all the rest of it so uh give netflix a call they might be able to <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is one of the reasons i get asked if i will start a podcast all the time and i'm like i will i will at some point not not quite yet so I'm appreciative of the work you, you, Chris and Sam are doing with this podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. So I just wanted to return to that, uh, that, that positive discrimination thing that, that, that Sam mentioned briefly. So because this comes down to sort of like that, that quota thing of people wanting to have a quota on a board. Is, is, that, a, is that still a positive thing to, for organizations to be having or is that a negative behavior? Because I get what you're saying about, you know, removing the blockers and it making it better for all because 100% agree with that. But do you think it's a negative behavior to have quotas or is that a positive? So you're going to love my answer. It's going to be, it depends. So <laughs> here's why we have some organizations are putting in quotas. If you don't already have in policies and procedures that make your hiring and promotion processes fair and as unbiased as you reasonably can, 
it's very likely you are going to result in a situation where everyone at the very top looks very similar, both in how they physically look and in management and leadership styles. And so how do you mitigate that if you've had decades of essentially creating a leadership echo chamber? And I want to describe this a little bit more because what we see happening when the criteria for getting promoted is not transparent throughout your organization, you are likely to promote people that remind you of you when you're younger and have a similar leadership style to your own. And so we are, in decades past, we have promoted much more on leadership style than leadership outcome. I think as technical people, we can all, we all recognize that outcomes are critically important to our jobs. And how we get to the outcome is less important than that we meet our deadlines and we get to those outcomes. Uh, yet for you know, the, the leadership paths, we have done the exact opposite for decades. And so how do you fix that problem when this problem has been there for so long enter the, the quota situation. And so I think in order to immediate, like if you want to affect immediate change, the quotas can be a really good thing. However, here, here's the challenge. Um, there have been some studies that, that's done that have shown like until you have like one person that's different doesn't do it. <laughs> until you have on the order of 30 to 40% of people who are different in some way from the rest of the group, all you've done, if you only have one, is now that one person is the outsider for the group and actually can't really affect any sort of change with the larger group. Uh, like you, you've basically thrown, the, the analogy I'll use is uh, if you are the single guy in the women's doctor's office, how uncomfortable do you feel, right? And that's, that's what women in the, the technical fields when they're the only one uh, experience, experience all the time. And so while the, the fair part of me, like as soon as you say quota, I think most of us have this instinctual quota, like that sounds terrible. That sounds not fair, very biased, we're promoting people not because they're qualified, but because they meet a certain criteria. Like that is my gut reaction to the word quota. And I think I'm not alone in, alone in that gut reaction to the word quota. But I also think that uh, if you want a fast way to start seeing an immediate change in how leadership is run, understanding that essentially we've had decades of quotas in the other direction. <laughs> right? Yes. Unconscious quotas, I think. Yes. Unconscious <laughs> quotas. We just haven't defined it like, we just haven't defined it like that. The, the quota can, can help. Now, the other thing is, is like, we're talking about behavioral change here. This is hard stuff. This is not comfortable. Uh, most of, most of us went into technology, not because we love people, but because we like the technical work. And so when you pile that on, that, okay, the, this whole people thing, people are much more messy than my nice equations. When you pile that on, then you get extra resistance uh, to either quotas or the types of policies that would enable people with diverse leadership styles to rise up through your organization. And so I think I, I can completely see both sides of the, of the quota issue, but the reality is for many technical firms, I mean, the, the firm has been running a, a men's support group for decades, <laughs> right? We just didn't call it that. And now that, that the kind of the women's empowerment movement has kind of is starting to gain more traction and come of age, there's all this resistance to, oh, we're actually going to call it what it is. Yeah, I I think being able to call it things like a men's support group, it, you know, it 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 sort of it exposes the hypocrisy, doesn't it, of it? And I think if you're able to do that, then um, that's probably something that's more capable of breaking it down than the negative reaction that everybody has to quotas. Yep, that's a good final thought, isn't it? <laughs> um, have you got anything else to add, Stephanie? Is there anything else you'd like to tell us before we close up? Yeah, I just want, I'm 
my final thought is I'm first very appreciative of you having me me on the show. But if all the listeners just have one takeaway for this, it's that you, whatever, wherever you want to go, you can have control over your own destiny. You just have to like embrace what you want to do and go for it. I believe that every single person has unique skills, gifts, and and talents that when you bring to your work, as long as you're willing to embrace what they are and not try and hide them, um, that the sky is the limit for you, that your imagination is the only thing that is holding you back from all the success you want in the world. That was wonderful. That was really good. Thank you so much for your time, Stephanie. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Well, that was Stephanie. Thank you for joining us, Stephanie. It was. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, guest listener, for like guest listener. Thank you, listener, for tuning in. Trying not. I'm stumbling over my words. I stumbled over words in the intro, and now I'm stumbling over. Are you drunk? I might be drunk. I don't know. I'll have to check my blood pressure. Um, is that is that a way to check your drunk? I don't think it is. I'm. uh, Right. Goodbye. (laughs) I'm going. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. We've got episode, what, 45 coming up next week. Who's on episode 45, Sam? Uh, So next week we have Chris Hood on the show, who's self-proclaimed tech guru at Google. The Google. The Google. The Google. The actual Google. So we've we've (laughs) got him on the show. We've We've got a Googler. Is that our first Googler? I think it's our first Googler. And to be fair, what a Googler. He's he's a digital strategist at Google. So he shares basically everything there is to know about Google. So it's a pretty pretty tasty episode. The Google Guru. Google Guru, yes. All right, well. Well, we should look forward to that one, and uh, we look forward to having you listen in and join us with uh, on that episode, and hopefully I will have uh, found all of my words and not be tripping over them by that point. 